This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program, highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Ben Gideon. Rahul is off today, so I'll be flying solo. And I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Randy Sorrells. Randy is a trial lawyer from Texas who has a number of absolutely monster verdicts, which we'll get into. He's also the former president of the Texas Bar Association and has been involved in a number of organizations, trial lawyer and state bar organizations. I met you, Randy, for the first time recently out in California at the trial conference out there. It was great to meet you because I had heard so much about you and read about your verdict. So uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm a follower already of the podcast and really appreciate the opportunity to be on. So I'm really interested to learn more about what it's like to be a trial lawyer in, in Texas in particular. How did you get to this place in your career where, you've, uh, where you're trying cases to $350 million verdicts, president of the uh, Texas Bar Association, and doing all these incredible things in your career? Well, you know, so my dad was in the military. We moved around a lot, and he ultimately retired here to Houston. And I went to a, a small school here in Texas. We didn't have many soccer schools that gave scholarships for Division I soccer programs. So little Houston Baptist University, HBU did, where, you know, University of Texas didn't have a men's soccer program, and A&M did not have a men's soccer program. There were only two soccer programs in Texas. So I wanted to play soccer in college. Uh, played soccer, then stayed at law school here at South Texas College of Law, which was known to be an advocacy school. And I did pretty well there. And so I went to on the big firm circuit and interviewed at all the big firms and started at a firm called Fulbright and Jaworski. And there was two things that were important there. Number one, they had a tr real trial team that they put me on. And so I stayed there three years and tried about 19 cases, which is pretty rare for a, a big firm. I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer. Uh, being in the courtroom. And then I, second thing is, is they had a real big, big push towards uh, public service and giving back to the profession. And that's the, the marriage that you mentioned of doing organized bar work and doing uh, trial work, being in the courtroom, which is what I enjoy doing. So I feel really lucky as most of us who get to these positions know you have to have a lot of luck to get here as well. So uh, most importantly there, what position did you play in soccer? And are you still, uh, do you still play? Or are you a, a fan of the game? Yeah, no, still a fan. So I, I, moving around in the country, we spent the most time in Virginia area, my father, through my middle years of high school. And I was a pretty good player in Northern Virginia. But when I came to Texas, soccer was not as advanced. And so I was a really good player in Texas. And that allowed me, again, just a lucky break to go to a soccer school in, in Texas. And uh, I moved from midfield, which had a lot of skills because uh, I developed those in Texas to at the college level back more to defense, which there's such talented players in the game from the U.S. and throughout the world that come to the U.S. to go to soccer schools and play soccer and uh, so I played defense. I'm a little, I was a little taller then. I'm six foot two, taller meaning you didn't see a lot of tall soccer players back then. Now there's a lot of big, big players that are out there playing. It was interesting when we were out in Los Angeles. You may have noticed, but the Juventus team was 
there at the same hotel that we were staying at and had that conference. And I, I don't know why, but I ended up waking up last night about three in the morning and I couldn't sleep. So I went downstairs and turned on the TV and Juventus was playing in the Champions League against uh, Paris Saint-Germain. So I watched about a half of the game, three in the morning, but I thought that was pretty neat that we were there. It was, it was sort of middle-aged, somewhat deconditioned lawyers and then super fit soccer players in that same hotel at the same time. It was really cool to be with them, and, and they are super fit, and they were all lean, a lot of tall people, uh, and they were hanging out with us normal lawyers on a regular basis. It was fun. So how did you go from the, the bigger firm environment of Fulbright and Jaworski to uh, doing plaintiff's trial work? Well, so I, I had clerked at a law firm that was the an old law firm, established law firm in, in Houston. And knew I wanted to go there. At that time, the firm was pretty small. It was about oh, six or seven lawyers. And they brought me over as an associate. They let me try a couple of cases. Uh, ironically, I just opened up a letter I found. I left, I've left that firm. My wife and I started our firm about a year and eight months ago, nine months ago. And um, the letter was about six months later. I just opened it up literally last week. And they said, you've done such a great job. You've tried cases. And they gave me a $7,000 a year raise back in 1990. And that was their way of saying, yeah, you're doing terrific. And they also said, don't tell anybody else this because this is extra special. So uh, uh, that's why I started at that firm. And a few years later, I actually became managing partner and grew the firm and evolved the compensation structure. So, you know, $7,000 might be a raise in one case, not one year. My wife and I, she came over, she was a big firm lawyer also. She clerked at the Texas Supreme Court and she ultimately came over from a big firm. We wanted to have a practice together, and we started our practice in January of 2021. And we tried a case starting in January 2021 that was high profile, and it started us off on a pretty good run. Yeah, that's the understatement of the year. So I, I became familiar with that case just the, through the you know media world um, that we travel in. But that that was a case where you received a verdict of 350 plus million dollars for a single individual worker who was injured. Well, actually that wasn't it. Oh, that uh, wasn't the case. No, okay. I'll tell you, we, we, uh, so in, in, um, January, 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, there's a baseball pitcher that a lot of people know, Roger Clements, his son and godson were in a bar a couple of years earlier and they were attacked in a bar and, at that time, cases were being live streamed and they still are in, in Harris County in Houston today. So we picked a jury in January of 2021, very good defense team. And in February, the first week of February, we tried the case and got a $3.24 million verdict on a very, very low offer. And now we have a, an excess verdict case against the insurance carrier for Roger Clement's son and godson. But a lot of people watched because Roger testified, the other ball player. His father was a former major league pitcher as well. So it was free advertising for us for in our first month with literally thousands of people watching. Uh, a bad verdict would have could have been disastrous, I guess, but we got on the good side of the verdict. What was the theory in that case? Well, so we had understood that the bar uh, bouncers beat up uh, Connor Capel, who was Mike Capel's son, Roger's godson, and Casey Clements, who uh, Roger and Mike, uh, they had a great story to tell. They came out of high school at the same time in Texas. Uh, Mike was a top prospect and went to the University of Texas. And all this came out through the trial. It was just fascinating. The jurors really dug into the facts. Mike came out as a top prospect, went to UT. Roger came out as not a top prospect and went to a junior college, San Jacinto Junior College, his freshman year. Uh, and that year, he uh, started to throw harder and UT picked him up. His sophomore year, so he and Mike became friends. And in their junior year of college, Mike Capel threw the semifinals of the College World Series to win for UT. And Roger Clements threw the finals of the UT National Championship, and they won the National Championship back then. Their sons are all good athletes and good ball players. They went into the bar, and in an unprovoked way, uh, they were beat up. And everybody I talked to said, well, number one, they must have been drunk, which they weren't. They weren't even close. They were both trying to make the majors. And number two, they must have been privileged kids, and they weren't. They're very quiet, 
kids. Uh, Casey Clements has a degree in finance from UT, and Connor Capel went out of high school into the minor leagues. Very quiet kid. And so we said that the bar, uh, you know, whether they were on steroids or something, the bar bouncers just went crazy as well as the owner. And I think that uh, the defense theory backfired and our theories were well received by the jury. So the bar bouncers were involved in the altercation and that injured the clients? Right. They literally bounced the two out. And there was one honest officer who was running security. And the honest officer went in to do an investigation. Connor had a very big cut on his forehead, um, blood going everywhere. And that honest officer, who was our second witness, just did a great job of saying, yeah, I determined it was one of the bar people. Our client actually identified the wrong person because the right person, we thought, he ran out of the bar. And so there was that intrigue of someone getting charged criminally that was uh, possibly wrongly charged. But ultimately, uh, and those charges were dropped, civilly they were held responsible and accountable. And Roger and Mike, the two former pitchers, really talked about why it was important to have a clean reputation in all aspects of your life, both on the field and off the field. And this scarred their reputations, which caused them to have mental anguish. And it was a 10-2 verdict, but the 10 who went with us really understood, and I think that's part of COVID, what mental anguish is about, which is, you know, what we've seen over these last few years is bigger verdicts because people understand really what non-economic damages mean. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've tried two cases during the pandemic and had great results. The other one was the 350 plus million dollar verdict, which I'd like you to talk about. But obviously you've had a good experience trying cases in the pandemic climate. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what that's been like and why do you think maybe jurors are more receptive now to plaintiff's cases than perhaps they were pre-pandemic? Yeah, and I hope it's not temporary, but I think, and some of our judges here in Harris County, they think it might be temporary, but People understood what isolation was about and what loneliness was about and, you know, how people can feel down. There were, uh, I think there were a lot of people who had undiagnosed depression. They had a concern about their futures and they understood and maybe still understand that uh, there's a lot more going on below the surface of an individual. You might see a cut on the head, but there's a lot more going on behind that skull in the brain between the ears than what's going on on the outside of the body. And and hope that people will continue to understand that and that jurors throughout the country uh, adequately recognize what pain and anguish, uh, loss of enjoyment of life is really about. Did you make a direct allusion to the pandemic in, in those arguments, or did you just kind of let that inform the background of yeah, so picking up on, and, and, and you know, one thing I've learned about this practice is you need to be a minder, a finder, and a grinder. And the minder part is, is some people are blessed with a real educated background, or they're very smart. And I think of, of your parents, or your, your parents and Rahul's parents, listening to you guys, how smart you have, and you're getting some great DNA, but it didn't stop you both from learning. And I think from a minder standpoint, we all have to continue to learn. I picked up a great tip I used in the third trial we'll probably talk about. You know, the finder is, is somehow we have to find a way to get people to send us cases and get business. And certainly putting out great work product is a great foundation to that. And the grinder part is you just got to do the work. You got to, you know, roll up your sleeves and read the documents and prepare for depositions and prepare for trial. So in the third trial we tried uh, this year, uh, it was down in the South Texas. We use the fact that governments have set aside trillions of dollars uh, of economic growth to protect the lives of people. And in that we as a, not just a society, as a world understand that we're going to lose trillions of dollars because we want to protect life and we want to protect health. And that still, I think, plays today, whether it plays in the future or not, and people have short memories, I don't know. But you can put legitimate argument to how our world as a whole recognizes the importance of health and life. When you're proving the mental anguish part of the case, do you have experts to talk about that? Or is it solely through the fact witnesses or both? 
Yeah, fact witnesses and in the $352 million case, we used all of the healthcare providers from, and we'll talk about that. This man was the worst hurt person. I challenge anyone to find someone worse hurt than him. Uh, that was an all actual damage verdict award, no punitive damages, $35 million in actual damages and the rest in non-economic damages. And we used their friends, we used family, and we used the morning health care provider, the physical therapist, and every doctor to talk about it. And no doctor had ever seen anything, anybody injured the, 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 to the level that Mr. Cruz was. Can you tell us the, the story of that case? Yeah. So Yuli Cruz and his wife, Cecile, they're from uh, the Philippines, Guam area. They actually lived in Guam. She's from the Philippines, which is, you know, a U.S. territory. Two kids. And as the kids were growing up and getting ready for college, they wanted their kids to be well-educated. Yuli was a worker for Continental Airlines first and then United, working on the tarmac. The people you see with the orange wands that guide planes in and out, and they help load the planes. Very important jobs. Obviously, lots of lives at risk. And the whole airport tarmac uh, behind the fences is a very protected environment. Uh, We identified it as an ecosystem that had its own special rules. And he wanted to move his family to the U.S. for their college education. So they moved to the U.S. their uh, sons, uh, when their son finished his senior year, and he was working at Bush Intercontinental Airport for United Airlines that morning, which was in September of 2019, backing a plane out away from the terminal. It was about 7.30 in the morning. The rules uh, between the fences for all vehicular traffic is when a plane is moving, and there's lots of warning devices for that, you must come to a stop. In other words, the plane and the people surrounding the plane have the right-of-way. And an Allied Aviation fuel van, so Allied Aviation, they fuel all the planes at uh, that particular airport and lots of them throughout the country. Uh, They have supervisors that drive vans around to make sure everybody's doing their job correctly and safely. But the Allied fueling driver who had been on the job for 43 years turned east as Yuli Cruz was backing an airplane out with two other United employees He said, the driver said, the sun got in his eyes, and rather than pulling the vehicle to a stop, which is what the training, good training would have required, he wasn't trained that way, he just kept going. He put his uh, visor down, held his hands up to try to block the sun. This is all according to his story, had his sunglasses on, and veered slightly off the road and struck Yuli as a pedestrian, uh, sending him flying through the air. Yuli was immediately paralyzed below the chest, which was bad. Uh, He was taken to the hospital. His wife and daughter were still in uh, Guam at the time. So his son, who was uh, 17 years old, was the one who met him at the emergency room. It's a very poignant conversation he had with his son, not knowing where his life would go. But the doctor said, we'll get you into surgery and we'll stabilize your, your fractured back and your paralysis. We don't want it to get worse. When he came out of surgery, he had had a massive stroke on the left side of his brain, which affected his entire right side, affected his ability to speak. Uh, He could understand a lot, but he can't speak, had very limited movement of just his left arm uh, and has a 22-year life expectancy basically locked in this body where he's required to be dependent upon everybody else to do pretty much everything in his life. So huge life care plan. Everybody agreed he was going to live a long time, and um, he was a you know fairly good wage earner. So we had thirty-five million dollars in economic damages. The jury awarded a thirty million dollar past, uh, pardon me, future life care plan, and then the parents, uh, his wife was given sorry twenty-five million for loss of consortium. Each child was given twenty plus million for loss of parental consortium. And that, that judgment was uh, entered, and then a remediature was ordered by the judge. So it's now about $235 million and it's up on appeal as we speak. And in a case like that, how did you get over the challenge that it was just so hopeless for him that no amount of money could, could help him because he has limited ability to recover? Was, it, did, was that something you were worried about? And how did you approach that? 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. Hopelessness for jurors is often met with an empty recovery. And so we have to create and also have ourselves hope for him. So we had a neurosurgeon from Stanford University who talked about the stroke issue and how it was related to this crash and the underlying injury to the parasympathetic system. But then he also talked about the great advances we've made in strokes over the last 10 to 15 years and the excitement and the enthusiasm for what's on the horizon. And so while we could not, based on reasonable medical probability, develop a life care plan for what science may care for or have for us in the future, it did provide us hope. And without full compensation for this family, you know, they're going to take away that hope. We had a great slide on that life care plan with our uh, economist who had two slides, one fueling a plane through a wing, which was perfect for the theme we had in the case. And the second, you've seen those mid-air fuelings that our, our government does where they're flying a plane full of fuel and they somehow get this tube connected with another airplane in the middle of the sky and they refuel it. And we pointed out there's no mid-air refueling in a life care plan. So if you don't fund it all, you're taking away hope and you're taking away the opportunities to make this recovery that we all know medical advances are coming at us fast and, and furious. And so that's what we did. We put hope back into the picture, not hopelessness, which is somewhat what the defendants tried to paint. What was it like for you and for the family when, when that verdict came back? Well, so, uh, you know, from a negotiation standpoint, uh, they had offered just a little bit of money. They had a $500 million insurance policy, a $500 million. So there was no way in Texas to stourize them unless we hit them for more than $500 million. And we gave the jury an opportunity to give them more than $500 million. Uh, the defense team had argued for a $24 million award and put to 50% on Mr. Cruz, our client, which would result in a net of $12 million. Uh, the the offer was uh, somewhere between $25 million and possibly as much as $40 million. We had had a high-low to discuss. And uh, so there was a lot of money on the table, uh, but we felt, my wife and I tried it, and I have to give her a lot of credit for the damages she developed. She, she, we all developed a great relationship with our family, our client. They're wonderful people that showed in the stand, in, in, in the witness stand. And so when the jury came back, you know, they had argued for 24 divided by two. The first numbers, the first things that come back is liability, and the jury found the company and the driver liable and 0% on our client. So there was a huge amount of relief. In Texas, if there's 51% on the plaintiff, there's a zero recovery. So a huge relief uh, was felt by me as we wrote down the numbers. Then the, the first number that came in was for uh, past. As you can imagine, I keep the verdict close. So <laughs> yeah. uh, we talk about it a lot, but not for the reasons you think. It's not for bragging. It's for figuring out how, how our courts of appeals and Supreme Court will understand it. And I think they will. Physical pain sustained in the past was $15 million, So that was close to the $25 million. The next number, they said, was mental anguish sustained in the past $15 million. And I'll tell you how we argued that is we, when we argued it, we told them a number and we said million. I said million on the first number. So when I said, when you get to physical pain, you know, or, you know, we want you to award 20, $25 million. The next number I just said, and that would be 20 uh, million. And after that, I'd say, here, you're going to put 30 in here. You're going to put, they understood it meant million afterwards. And they wrote the words million as opposed to the numbers. So the second number was 15 million. Okay. We've beaten the 25 official offer. The third number was for physical pain, and that was $70 million. And from there, the numbers became a blur. The next one was $70 million for mental anguish in the future, physical impairment in the past, $15 million, physical impairment in the future, $35 million, disfigurement in the past, $10 million, disfigurement in the future, $22.5 million, medical care in the past, we had proven up and they agreed to $2 million, uh, medical care in the future, 30 million. They were right at the number we had requested. 
He had a loss of earning capacity in the past of 290000 loss of earning capacity in the future of $2.6 No punitive damages in the case, all actual damages. We, we would not have won a gross case. It was an 11-1 verdict with the one wanting to put some percentage of fault on our client. So uh, we looked over. Uh, my wife did. Alex did. She looked over and she saw one of the defense lawyers, when the numbers start to be read, just put his hands in his head and kind of buried his pardon me, his head in his hands, kind of buried his head. And I looked up and one of the other defense lawyers, when it was over, he had his calculator out and he was trying to punch in the numbers to see what they had to report back to the carrier. So it was $352.7 million. Great stories about the kids and their claims and the wife was just amazing as well. And is that the largest single compensatory damage verdict for a single injured plaintiff in the country, do you think? Yeah, I think so. And, and, uh, and we say in a contested case, there may be some where where there were bigger. Actually, I don't think there are any because I think punitive damages come in. The interesting thing about that case also became high profile is a great firm developed the case on the defense side from the start. Jackson Walker, excellent lawyers, did a really good job. But I think they were nervous. And I know they were nervous because uh, when we did a focus group, remind me, I'll tell you the story about that very interesting tale. I know they were nervous because their focus group came back with big numbers, and I'll tell you why in a second. But I think they wanted to hire a very well-known, high-profile lawyer in Houston, and they selected a guy named Rusty Harden. He is the best-known lawyer in Houston. He um, earned his stripes at the district attorney's office and then came out into the private world. And people know him doing criminal defense work, but he's an excellent civil lawyer. He represents every... Every athlete in Houston that gets in trouble goes to Rusty Harden. James Harden, a basketball player, Rusty Harden represented. Deshaun Watson, the quarterback who's had so much trouble, now plays for the Cleveland Browns. That's Rusty Harden's client. And so having him on live stream, again, this case was live streamed, was a huge, another two-week commercial for our firm because everybody wanted to watch Rusty, including me. He was really good to watch in trial. And believe me, we were worried when he was arguing for $24 million and 50-50, he sounded very reasonable. So that's another reason we breathe, breathe a big sigh of relief. He did a great job of trying the case, but that meant just a lots of people watched and it helped. To go back to the story, while I know they were worried. We did a focus group on the case and several, and one of the focus jurors after we did our presentation had said, I, I've heard these facts before. We said, well, really? Well, where at? We didn't recognize her. And she was at another hotel in Houston. So we realized she was on the defense focus group. So a city of, you know, many millions, you know, six million people, what are the odds? <laughs> and uh, we said, well, tell us about that. And she said, well, I thought that the driver and the company were responsible. And, and I did the argument on the focus group. I argued for the defendants. She goes, I thought you did a much better job representing allied aviation. So I felt good about my advocacy skills, but she said that, um, they still held the driver and the company responsible and gave him a hundred million dollars. So that's the defense focus group understanding. This is a nine figure case that helped when we were, you know, talking about accepting, you know, multiple tens of millions of dollars and not ex- and deciding not to accept it because we knew that the injuries by this guy, you're, you're just never going to see again. We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com. And by LawPods. LawPods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. What do you think? I mean, it sounds like this was a a battle of titans in the courtroom with two incredible trial lawyers who brought enormous skill to trying this case on both sides. Do you think that ultimately the skill of the lawyers might have canceled each other out and it ended up being a, a decision based on the strength of the facts? Or was there some angle that you think that the plaintiff had 
kind of strategy or, or approach to this that gave you the upper hand at that trial? Yeah, well, it's nice of you to call me a titan. So I'll tell you in Vore <laughs> Dyer, the uh, judge said, um, okay, I, I need to know if you all know any, and we call it Vore Dyer in, in Texas, by the way, Vore Dyer in other areas. How many of you know uh, Mr. Hardin? And it was a 75-person panel, and at least two-thirds of the people raised their hand. That's Mr. Hardin, a defense lawyer. And how many of you all know Mr. Sorrells? And I think there were two. One guy was a lawyer and knew because I was president of the state bar. And I think the other person just felt sorry for me that so many people knew Mr. Hardin and didn't know me. So we used that to our advantage, that that judo law that we've all heard about. Uh, we had planned it from the start. One of our focus jurors gave us the best line because you never know how it's going to be. And, and I'll, let me back up and say, when we did our research on our defense team, we had found that jurors would find for Mr. Hardin, they'd find fairly quickly, and several panels, jury panels, would want to take pictures with him afterwards after they found in his client's favor. He's a very likable, affable person. No one's going to be mad at him. And um, when we did our focus group, uh, we said, of course, they didn't know the names of the defendants. What do you think about if Mr. Hardin was representing Allied Aviation? And several jurors gave feedback that, you know, were frankly scary for us. But one juror may have got it right. He said, man, that guy is a badass. And there's a long pause. And he said, the company must have done something really wrong if they brought him in. And that may have played in our favor uh, because uh, it was pointed out that they brought him in late into the game. And, you know, if, when you're in trouble, who do you get? You get the best lawyer you can find. So judo law takes their strengths, you know, one of the best lawyers in the country and hopefully works it against them and not and in our favor. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you try all your cases with your wife? No. Well, we, the case I tried in the Valley, uh, we have a, a three and a half year old and we're expecting another baby in February. We're pretty excited about that. Congratulations. So I tried a case in the Valley, thanks, a couple of months ago and it was in the Valley, that, which is South Texas. And my clients there were both lawyers. The, the wife was hit in an auto pedestrian uh, crash and she was in a crosswalk and the husband was a lawyer. And so uh, they were wise and, and decided to hire another lawyer to represent them. And I was fortunate to be asked. And so myself and the husband tried the case. We sent, uh, as we do with many of our clients, we don't necessarily want them in, in the trial. So we sat his wife, Lydia, uh, out of the courtroom for most of the trial he and I tried the case together and really enjoyed working with him. How did that one come out? So that one came out good. That was, you know, an offer of $250,000. They said that our lady from South Texas, who via Harvard uh, undergrad, a Yale uh, MBA or master's degree, a master's degree in SMU law school, and then moved back to the Valley to represent people from, from her community. Uh, they said she was too smart and she should not have walked in that crosswalk and the jury returned $9.3 million, $200,000 in future medicals. We waived past medicals and $9.1 in non-economic damages with a 25% fault on her. So, of course, I wish I could have kept the fault down, but we've gotten most of it settled now. And we have a Stowers case against the driver, and that's just been assigned to us. So we're going after State Farm for failing to pay their $50,000 policy limit. When you do try cases with your wife, how does that work out? Do you guys, is that difficult or do you guys enjoy that? Just tell me about the dynamics there. Cause I was, you know, I think a lot of uh, us can envision what it might be like trying cases with our spouses. And sometimes that sounds mm -hmm. like a good idea. And sometimes maybe not. Some of the studies say that the male female teams do well, male female husband-wife teams do really well. And if you can put her pregnancy in there, huh. they do really well. So I'm trying Are to there, get a case. Is there really data on, on male-female husband-wife teams? It seems like yes. such a niche yeah. uh, thing. No, there is. I mean, and I, of course, being in the ABA, we follow this stuff, and there is data that hmm. male-female teams do do better than you know two white males. Uh, my wife uh, has a Hispanic culture, and I don't know if we'll get to try a case before the birth of this next baby because a couple of cases have gone away, but we have a pretty good docket for uh, October, November. Maybe we'll get to get one in there together. What do the data say on male, female, husband, wife, pregnant cases? Well, 
I, I'm, I'm hoping they'll say uh, good stuff because, you know, uh, we'll get one in. But we we get along very well together. She, as, as I bragged on her, you know, she's very smart. She's a great writer. I don't have to worry. If an issue comes up, as we all know, that's in trial that needs immediately briefing, she can be there on the computer knocking out a quick bench brief while I'm taking on a witness or she put on witnesses too. Uh, she found the damage experts in the, in the uh, airport case. She got the wife ready. The wife was a, a, besides being a wife, she was also a nurse. So she was becoming, she had become the primary caregiver for her, her husband and had to cover for, he needs 24 hour a day care. If someone didn't show up, she had to do that. And the wife did an amazing job. Alex got her ready. Alex put on the kids to tell you a story about that. Again, it's fortunate and it, it we used a jury consultant um, named uh, Robert Hirshhorn. And in our jury panel, there was one lady who identified herself from Great Britain and her father was a paraplegic. And of course, we have this injury with uh, this case. And I thought we probably don't want her on our jury because her father was a paraplegic and did not, you know, get a million dollars. And uh, Robert Hershorn, our jury consultant, said, you know, I think she's going to understand these damages better than anybody else, and you should keep her on. And uh, she was the most active juror, and I know that because uh, our judge let jurors ask questions. And we talked to her afterwards. We didn't know who the questioner was, but it turned out to be her. She said she took three uh, legal-sized notebook pads full of notes throughout the trial that she would wake up in the middle of the night dreaming about the case. And then when it came time for the, the jury to award damages to the children for their loss of parental consortium, that she made sure those kids got at least $20 million because no one is going to know what they're going to have to go through for the next 22 years besides her. And it is not good. And so she became our advocate. And, and Hirshhorn, I give Robert Hirshhorn credit for recognizing keep someone because they will empathize and properly award damages. And, and she turned out to be a great advocate for us back in the jury room. What was your approach in, to voir dire and what is generally your approach? I know te Texas has pretty open opportunity for uh, lawyers to ask questions, right? So, yes, we had a very progressive judge who does his own jury selection speech and, and identifies jurors, and he did great. Of course, we had COVID to deal with and a two-week trial, which, which we thought might be three weeks, but we shortened the trial. We felt things were going well for us, so we shortened the trial and got it over a little more quickly than we thought. And, you know, it's a combination. Uh, learning, as we all have over these last few years and through our careers, there's some great East Coast things that you use, and there's some great West Coast things that Rahul uses, and there's some Florida stuff that Mitnick uses, and there's some Texas stuff that Mark Lanier uses. And I'm, I'm you know, that part of that minder, finder, grinder, and the minder part, I really look and see what you all use and, and uh, your medical malpractice uh, practice is the most challenging. I do a lot of medical malpractice as well. If you can pick a medical malpractice jury and get a successful recovery, you can pick any jury and get a successful recovery. So, Started off with uh, Keith Mitnick and Nick Rowley, get them talking, identify the areas where they're just not going to award uh, money for non-economic damages, and some jurors self-identified that way. You know, we laid into the issues of it's going to be tens of millions of dollars that would be discussed, and of course, it ended up being hundreds of millions, and we knocked out a fair amount that could not uh, wrap their arms around numbers of that size, regardless of what the evidence or injury showed. Uh, we worked a little bit into one of the defenses was that Mr. Cruz, our client, had worked uh, many hours, uh, double shifts before that time because his wife and daughter were out of town and his son was uh, in, now in school. And uh, they tried to say he wasn't he was too tired and wasn't situationally aware. So we talked to jurors about, you know, there are some people who function just fine on less sleep, probably like you, if you're waking up at three in the morning watching a soccer game, you do just fine today. And I know you had a hearing this morning. I'm sure you prevailed. Uh, and so we, you know, use the jurors to inoculate against some of the issues, just as they do with ours. And certainly we had DeVore Dyer on Rusty Harden, uh, being a celebrity, local celebrity lawyer. We had DeVore Dyer on the lawyer, which is pretty rare. Tell me how that went. You know, it went pretty well because what, when— what, what did you ask? 
Yeah, well, we talked about the fact that people had heard of him and uh, we knew because we read his war diaries because he had a criminal defense background. He knows that people, you know, don't necessarily favor lawyers who try to get criminal defendants off on technicalities. And he understands, obviously, he's very good. He understands that. So we kind of used that uh, the other way that, you know, would any of you find for him because he's so well known and because the very best hire him and the people who can afford the money can hire him. And the people that we mentioned, uh, James Harden and Deshaun Watson. And come full circle to closing argument, and he gave us a bit of an opening in, in uh, his opening. In opening, we asked, we sat down and, and asked for $385 million and then sat down. He started off, he said, you know, I'm from a small town in North Carolina of 9,000, and, and that's a lot of money. And, you know, I'm not going to talk much about the money until later on. And of course, we flipped that around in closing and said he may have come from a small town and of nine thousand. Always very respectful to him, by the way. But in the end, he lives in Houston and he has clients that make hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, let's talk about real money in Houston, Texas, not what could be talked about in a small town in North Carolina. Going back to your question on Vore Dyer, we focused about ten minutes on whether you could give us a fair shake. And that's all we're looking for. Or you'd start him off ahead. He has uh, prominent seats at the Houston Rockets games, and there was some. There was one guy, and Rockets fans in particular, said, "I I could not vote against that guy. He's, you know, I see him at the Rockets games. He's a, uh, yeah. When you're good, you're a people person. And if you just, you know, met him, you'd know he's a people person. And so we took that on, and hopefully we nullified it. I guess we did uh, by the result. So uh, we spent some time on that. Then we, you know, talked about an auto pedestrian. There, are, in auto pedestrian cases, there are some jurors that think a pedestrian is responsible, no matter what the evidence is surrounding that collision. And a number of people felt that way. Uh, so we struck people for cause uh, on those issues. And then we talked about the consortium claims and the parental and the children to make sure that they knew this family wasn't trying to financially benefit from this loss, but it's a family loss. And uh, that worked. Now, again, I'll fast forward to closing argument. Uh, in closing argument, we requested, as you as you know, uh, somewhere between 300 and $800 million. Uh, Mr. Harden in his close said, closing argument said, you know, our system is about being reasonable and uh, not about creating generational wealth. And he used that term three times, generational wealth. A friend of mine watched the trial and she said when uh, she heard that, she said, boy, I think that the numbers are going to be pretty low because we shouldn't create generational wealth. In rebuttal, because of a particular family circumstance we have, we have a family member who's hurt really badly as well. And uh, we see how it affects that family. In rebuttal, we said, you know what, uh, folks, they didn't create generational wealth. You see, who takes care of this man right now is his wife. And besides that, his 22-year-old son and 18-year-old daughter, they take care of him as well. And besides that, they're going to have kids, and their kids are going to have to take care of him as well, because we know it's the wife and the children and the grandchildren. What they've created is a generational burden. And because they've created that generational burden, they have to be held accountable. And the person watching, she said, when she heard that, she said, oh, it's all over. You know, they're not going to go for the defendants. And our personal experience dealing with that uh, family tragedy as well allowed us the opportunity to turn his generational wealth into generational burden. Wow, that that is really powerful. I can see how that uh, why you get such a great result in that case. Well, congratulations on that on that case. It sounds like justice prevailed, and I know you're still dealing with uh, appeals, but I hope that goes really well and the family gets paid soon because they certainly deserve it. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about it is I don't know if we'll see this across the country for decades. Of course, jurors haven't really understand or appreciated non-economic damages, pain and mental anguish and the suffering that goes along with that. Well, in the Supreme Court just last week, there were two cases granted where they're asking our Texas Supreme Court to somehow reevaluate how non-economic damages are assessed and evaluated at the appellate court level. And I thought how uh, fundamentally unfair that is for decades when the Supreme Court 
you know, wasn't asked to say, well, this isn't enough money for what people go through. And now that jurors are starting to recognize what really non-economic damages are about, they're being asked by insurance companies to limit that. It's something I hope the Supreme Court doesn't bite on. Well, that's a good segue because I wanted to ask you about, you served as the president of the Texas trial, uh, I mean, the Texas Bar Association, what was it, 2019, 2020? So kind of early pandemic. There must be a lot going on there in Texas in terms of the the politics and the bar, particularly with uh, what we read about in the newspaper with the governor and mask mandates and all, all of the other stuff and the craziness. What what has that been like for you being wading into that at that level? Yeah. So the, the State Bar of Texas is a, you know, it's a non-political bar. In Texas, we have a mandatory bar or or which means that everybody who wants to be a lawyer has to be a member of the bar. And not all states are like that. I'm not sure how it is in your state, if it's mandatory or not. But there's about 35 states that are a mandatory bar. So you have to join, which means as lawyers who are skeptics and cynics and complainers by nature, you get to hear all of that stuff. You know, they don't want to be a member and they got a bully pulpit to tell you their thoughts. And what you have to learn to do is be a good listener and Every complainer you better listen to because they may actually have a legitimate complaint. So when I ran for state bar president, there was a lot of discontent among people. I ran as a as someone who did not go through the normal process. I petitioned and got close to 5,000 signatures to run for the state bar president. My opponent, also a trial lawyer, very well known, very highly respected, did the same thing. And as a result, the state bar didn't nominate a candidate. Typically, the state bar nominates two candidates. And so it was myself and the other lawyer. And we uh, held an election, the state bar held an election, and I won by a a good margin. And from there, it was, okay, what are you going to do for us as lawyers? And so my year was about making our state bar, which we have to be a member of, be for the lawyers. And certainly, we want to protect the public, and, and we're there for the public. But if we're going to be required to be members, what's the state bar going to do for us? I won on that platform by the largest margin in, in state bar history. And the people who have followed me running, who are board-nominated candidates, I think they think the same thing as how can we improve the lives of lawyers? Because if our lives are good, then we're going to do a better job for our clients. So it's a trickle-down effect. And it was very gratifying. And then, of course, COVID hit. The bar year is from uh, basically July to July. Bar- COVID hit in, in March, and we had to go into a different type of mode. And our state bar staff, which is um, headed by the executive director, is a formal, former trial lawyer named Trey Apfel. He uh, brought everybody together and said, let's get a game plan to get our lawyers through that. So a lot of free CLE. These podcasts you have is, to me, a direct result of COVID of talented lawyers like you and Rahul trying to share wisdom and get wisdom from other people. And a lot of people picked up on that. So the state bar did too. We got a lot of free CLEs out. We provided more mental health care uh, than before. And from a politics standpoint, we stay out of it. Although recently uh, our attorney general has tried to politicize the state bar. and uh, That's got its own uh, interesting set of twists. Uh, There have been some grievances filed against the attorney general that made its way through the process, and they're now in the court system for things that were done during the um, uh, election lawsuits. And of course, we as lawyers have a duty of candor, and we can't just make things up. And uh, you know, there's some issues going on there in the courts and things that are going to be interesting. Yeah, that's for sure. So how did you manage to do all this? You you left a law firm that you were the managing partner of at one point, decided to start a new firm, trying multiple high-profile cases and serving as president of the State Bar Association. When do you find time to uh, to sleep or do uh, recreational activities for fun? You know, I'm, I, I don't, I'm like that, Mr. Cruz. I just don't need a lot of sleep, and that's uh, certainly something that I... Uh, take advantage of. You know, I wake up every morning at four and I'm in the gym by four, hopefully 4.20, 4.25, then get to the office before six and with an effort to see my wife at work and then make it home in time to eat with our son, whose name is Houston. He's a late nighter too. I wish I could say his classmates, you know, go to bed at seven or 7.30 and, 
you know, we struggle sometimes at 10 or 1030. Come on, you got to go to bed. So we get to sit, pl- spend plenty of time with him. Uh, I've got four other great kids, all of whom, you know, I, I try to put that energy in coaching all their sports and, and um, they're uh, two are in law school now. They're three L's at University of Texas. One's a speech therapist in New York and one's a, a teacher and has a granddaughter of, of uh, ours that is uh, doing well. And she's, of course, married to a lawyer who has the same uh, outlook on, on life as I do, which is if you're having fun, it's not work. And it's just fun doing this stuff. Well, it, this has been really fun to spend the better part of an hour with you, Randy. Um, congratulations on all your amazing success. Will you be teaching a program at the uh, Trial Lawyer University Conference in Las Vegas coming up in um, October? Yeah. So Alex, my wife and I are teaching, and our topic is uh, 152 Practice Ideas to Get Your $352 Million Verdict. And that's the title of the program. And wow. um we call it practice ideas because, as you know, what works for one doesn't work for another. And we used a number of them as techniques in all three of these cases and all the cases we've used. We've refined them a little bit more. And then we've added to it, listening to I picked up some things on your podcast. I said that needs to go in our 152 practice ideas. And some of your guests are are prominently recognized in some of the practice ideas. So we're going to share 152 ideas with hopefully a fast-moving PowerPoint-laden uh, three-hour presentation with plenty of breaks in between. And in the other two and a half days we'll be there, we hope to pick up another 152 practice ideas for us to use. Well, I definitely would love to attend that. I I could use 152 extra ideas at this point. Uh, that's a sort of a, a, a kind of a random number. How did you come up with that? Was it? Uh, is there some significance to the 152 number? I gave a presentation to the Austin Trial Lawyers Association. It was 52 to get 352. So the 52 runs in the 352, and and we had to rush through 52 in an hour. We rushed through it, but it was really really well received, and and I got as much out of it. And so uh, with three hours, we said, well, we can probably get through 152 to get your $352 million verdict. And that's the number we pick, 152 practice ideas to get your $352 million verdict. That sounds fascinating. We'll sign up for the the program now. Well, that's great. And thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. We really appreciate it. And uh, I learned a lot today. And I hope you'll come back on in the future. And we'll get Raul here. So. he can learn the things that I I did today. Thank you. Well, it's my honor. One thing I learned is this this may be the largest trial lawyer podcast in America now. That's why you know when you're trending up like this, I'm I'm lucky to ride the wave, and and uh, hopefully I don't diminish your numbers too much, and your next guest can pick it up. Yeah, well, I'm sure you won't. I think you'll you'll cause a spike, which uh, we, <laughs> we we will benefit from. So thanks again. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.